say good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Leviticus this morning, Leviticus chapter 10. You can find your way there on your phone or your tablet. Leviticus 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 will be our text that we're going to study together this morning. Before we go any further, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we're grateful for this Lord's Day and your infinite wisdom you gave us this day. You gave us this day because you are holy, you are righteous, you are awesome. And you are worthy to be praised. God, as we read earlier to start the service, even now, there are angels that sole job that it is, is to proclaim your holiness. You are the thrice holy God. Everything about us, God, is so tainted by the fall, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what that really means what you're really like and how holy you really are. We're thankful this morning, God, that in your holiness, you're also patient, kind and loving, compassionate, forgiving and gracious. And so God, at the very beginning of our service this morning, God, our time in the word, I mean, Our prayer is very simple. We pray that you help us to see who you are, God. It was prayed already at some point that you would increase, that we would decrease. That's our heart's desire, God. That by your infinite wisdom and love and grace and mercy towards people, towards your people, that you would just humble us, that you would just help us to see our great need for you this morning. Thank you for Pastor Jim this morning, Father, and putting it into his heart to focus in on the means of grace and what that means for missions. It's good for us to reflect on these things, Father, for we live in a day where everything, in, everything is instant. The means of grace teach us what it means to be faithful, to faithfully use what you've employed, what you've instructed for your glory and for our good. So we do that now. Feebly, weakly, we need your help. Help the listener, help the preacher, help the preacher not be just a preacher but also a listener. God, help us all be appliers. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's my assignment this morning to speak to you all about worship. That's a big topic. There's a lot of books that have been written. A lot of verses we could go to. A lot of different ways we could tackle this. 
um, concept and this truth of, of worship. Gratefully, Pastor Jim narrowed it down for me just a little bit and wants me to talk with you guys about worship as a means of grace and then attaching that to missions. Pastor Tom prayed earlier that this would be the last day of the month of missions. Well, this won't surprise you. Sorry, Pastor Jim, but we're going to go to next week as well. Simply because I'm supposed to preach next week as, as well. So we'll go into overtime next week when we look at this passage. It's a good passage. But I want to talk to you about worship is a means of grace. And as we do that, I want to state a few things from the beginning to kind of get our minds right and our hearts right. So don't you think about this with me. When we think about worship as a means of grace... First off, we must state from the beginning that we are only able to worship because of God's grace. That's the only reason we are able to worship is because of God's grace. We think about grace and it just kind of rolls off our tongue. It rolls off our back. We don't really think about it too often because it's a familiar term. But sometimes when those terms become familiar, we forget what they actually mean and Let's do a quick remembering of what grace is. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Very simple definition. What do we deserve, brothers and sisters? We deserve God's wrath. And not only do we deserve God's wrath, but the Bible tells us that we don't deserve it for a moment, but we deserve God's wrath for eternity. Let that soak in, because that really is the backdrop by which worship springs. That we are only able to worship a holy God because he is gracious. Without the grace of God extended constantly to us, we would not worship him. And if it were not for his grace and his sheer awesomeness and his holiness, you know what would happen to us? It would consume us. Let that soak in. Run that through the grid of your heart. Think about what you're like. Think about the things that you think and the things that you say and the things that you do. If it weren't by God's grace, not only would we not be able to worship God, but we would utterly be consumed. We would be. God is good to us. We also need to grasp that in his goodness to us, the Lord. This is so awesome. We have much to be thankful for. That God in his grace has prescribed for us how we are to worship him. How we are to approach him. He did not leave us in the dark. He didn't drop us off in the middle of the Everglades and said, you find your way back to Highway 27. Good luck. He didn't do that to us. Because our God is a good God. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he's pure than we could ever understand on this side of glory. But he's good. And he's given us his word to tell us exactly how we are to approach him and how we are to worship him. 
Can, can I say the same thing in a different way? The sad reality is because of the twisted fall of our heart, the twisted nature that we have, the sin nature that's in us, if God didn't give us his word to tell us how we are to approach him and to tell us how we are to worship him, do you know what we would do according to Romans 1? We would exchange the worship of the creator for the creation. And even as a Christian, after you come to faith in Christ, if God did not give us his word and tell us how we are to approach him and how we are to worship him, do you know what we would do? We would do the very thing that Calvin warned us against, which is trying to approach God with human inventions. Do you understand? We live in a society right now that hates authority and that hates rules and, and just hates anybody that tries to tell anybody what to do. Isn't it crazy, the chaotic nature of our society? But God is good. Sin brings chaos. God brings order. And in God's order, he gave us how we are to worship him. He didn't leave it up to us because if it were left up to us, even the most godly man and even the most godly woman on the face of the planet would not be able to figure out how to approach God rightly. Couldn't do it. And neither could I. I want you to think about that. Brothers and sisters, it's no light or trivial thing to come into the presence of a holy God. It's not. I was thinking about it this week, Pastor Jim. You know, in God's goodness, he gave us six days to prepare for the Lord's day. We don't often think of it that way, do we? We think of the other six days as those are days where I need to work, and we do. But we don't often connect the other dot that the other six days are days that we are to prepare for this moment in time where we gather together as a family and we open up the word and we sit before the Lord and we say, Lord, with your word through a preacher, speak to our hearts and illuminate with the spirit and help us grow in grace and call sinners from darkness to light. It is no trivial thing. It's no light thing. I want to show you this this morning from Leviticus chapter 10. So look with me at this passage of scripture. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and the balance of our time will be spent on verse 1. It's a powerful passage of scripture. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now listen to this. Which he had not commanded them. Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. From a simple reading of this passage of scripture, it gets our attention, does it not? 
This is one of those places in the Bible where you're like, whoa, okay, that's intense. It's one of those moments where God in his goodness and his grace reminds us as a people that get so used to the, the things of God that the familiarity of the things of God dull our senses to the holiness of God. And then we treat the holy things of God as common. And so when we read this passage of scripture, one of the things that we notice is God is not like us. He's holy. He gets our attention. It makes us wonder, at least it should, who can stand before this holy God? I mean, if these two men went in before God to, to at some level strive to worship God and he struck them dead, it makes us wonder, it makes us think, it makes us stop, it checks our spirit. All right, then. If not them, then who? Who can stand before this holy God? How do I approach him? Here's the key question that I want you to think about. How can a holy God accept the worship of a sinner? How can a holy God accept the worship of a sinner? Those of you that are in the faith this morning, there was a time when you were far away from God and now you're not. There was a time when God didn't accept your worship. You worshiped the false things. You made so many idols, myself included. I did the exact same thing. Everybody born is born in sin, born with a corrupt nature, born totally depraved, alienated from God, hating God, hating his word, not wanting to submit to God, wanting to take the things of God and twist them to their own advantage, taking a little bit of God, taking a little bit of the world and trying to wed those things together. We have all done that, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? So what happened to us so that our worship was not despicable to God or detestable to God or rejected by God like Cain's offering was, but acceptable to God. How can a sinner worship God and it be acceptable? I'm glad you asked. Look back at the verse. Notice what we find out about these two men. Two brothers, Nadab. And Abihu gives us a little bit of information regarding their family history. They were sons of Aaron. Who was Aaron? Aaron was Moses' brother. By this time, Aaron had been established as what would later be kind of known as the high priest. Aaron was the, the main priest, if you will. Now, I want you to look back at Exodus with me. Go to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to bounce back and forth between Exodus and Leviticus this morning. There's a reason why Leviticus follows Exodus, and it's because Leviticus is really like an extension of Exodus. So who were these men? Exodus 28, verse 1. Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. So God's talking to Moses. And who? His sons with him from among the people of Israel. To do what? 
Notice the text. What does it say that these men were called out and set apart by God to do? They were set out and called by God to serve as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons. Now notice who's listed. Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So these men that we read about in Leviticus 10 were called out by God, set apart by God for a specific task, and it was to serve the people of Israel, to minister to them, and to serve the Lord. Now I want you to notice something else with me about Nadab and Abihu. Exodus 28 is not the first place that we read about them. Go back a couple of chapters to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. When you go to Exodus chapter 24, I'd like for you to find your way to verse 9. We'll look at verses 9 through 11. So we have now before us who these men were. They had been called by God to be priests. Now before they were called by God to be priests, God had also blessed them in another way. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, and who? Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So we've got this group of people that have gathered together, the 70 elders, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are specifically mentioned. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And they saw who? Now, this is one of those places that I don't understand, Pastor Jim. So we don't want to linger here too long. We'll let the text speak for itself. It says that they saw the God of Israel. What all that entailed, I don't know. You have to find someone that's smarter than I am, and you can ask them. But I don't know. But what I do know is they saw the God of Israel. What all that looked like, not sure. Was that pre-incarnate Christ? Don't know. Was it God's glory? Not sure. But what we do know is enough. They saw God. Keep going. There was under his feet, under God's feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 11. And he, he's talking about God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, I don't know if you feel the tension, or maybe you have already figured out where I'm going with this. But why is it in Leviticus 10 that Nadab and Abihu went into the tabernacle before the, before the Lord and were struck dead? But when you read Exodus 24, they saw the Lord saw what he was standing on, and they were not struck dead. Hmm. Is God wishy-washy? Did God somehow change between Exodus 24 and Leviticus 10? Sometimes it's often said, well, God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the New Testament is a God of love. So maybe we see as his love there in 24 and just his wrath in Leviticus 10. Is that true? No, that's not true. 
God possesses all of his attributes infinitely and equally all at once. He never gains. He never loses. He does not stop something to become something else. He is God. So what happened between Exodus 24 and Leviticus 10? Hmm. Well, let's look back at Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, verse 9. Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. Here's the question. Did they just do this on their own? Or were they instructed to do this? Were they following the command of God? Was this something that was prescribed? The answer is yes, this was prescribed. The only reason that they were able to go up on the mountain, the only reason that they were able to see God... The only reason that this was able to happen was because God had said, you may come up. Well, then the next question is, because in Hebrews it says our God is a consuming fire. And we can look at other stories like when Uzzah touched the ark and he died. Right? Why didn't they die? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel they beheld God and ate and drank why did they not die God's grace it's God's grace that's why they did not die listen they were invited commanded instructed to come into the very presence of God and to see him with their own eyes and to enjoy his presence whatever that looked like we don't know but the reason that he did not strike them dead is because he's gracious. They weren't doing this on their own. They were following his instruction, but he still extended grace to them. Pastor Jim, Pastor Eric, and myself were talking on Thursday, and we were talking about the fact that every time that we've ever stood behind this pulpit and preached, you know what the Lord should have done? Struck every one of us dead. Think about that. Why is it that you sit in the chair that you sit in and you're living and breathing and God hasn't broke out against you? That's worth thinking about. That's what we deserve, but... But we are gathered together as he has prescribed, reading the word as he has prescribed, listening to it preached as he has prescribed. And the reason that he does not strike us dead is because of his grace. His grace. But we still got to think about Leviticus 10, do we not? So go back to Leviticus 10. What happens to Nadab and Abihu? What changed between Exodus 24 and Leviticus 10? Well, let's look at the text again. Verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered an authorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them do you see the difference do you see the difference in exodus 24 they had been invited they've been commanded they've been instructed they have been told come up and worship me on this mountain but yet 
In Leviticus 10, they went beyond what was clear. Hmm. So, what does all this mean? They take their censer. They put, it was just something that held fire, held a coal. They put that coal in it, put that fire in it. They put incense on it. Some of your Bibles may read strange fire. In the Hebrew, it's just talking about that they offered fire to God. They offered incense to God that was against the law. That's all it means. They did something that God did not prescribe. That's what it's talking about. Here's what they did, and I'm going to say the same thing in a different way. They took God's wisdom and set it over here to the side. They took their own wisdom and mixed some of God's commands, did their own thing. They elevated human wisdom above God's wisdom. That's what they did in the moment. That's what's happening. Now, I want you to understand this very carefully because maybe you're thinking, now, if I know my Bible right, this tabernacle stuff, the utensils in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, like all this stuff was kind of new, right? They were just kind of in the wilderness and maybe, just maybe, Phil, they didn't know any better. Maybe it was out of ignorance, Pastor Jim. Not really. They knowingly and they willingly sinned against God in this way. Remember I told you that we'd be in Exodus some? Go back to Exodus chapter 30. Remember what I told you at the beginning of our service or the, the sermon? God in his goodness and God in his grace has told us exactly what we are to do when we come into his presence and how we are to worship him. And we don't have any wiggle room to make up our own thing. We need to stick to the word of God. God's good and God's clear. Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. If you look at the heading, some of your Bibles may say the altar of what? What did they offer? Strange fire. Incense. They did something that was opposite of what we're about to read about. Verse 1, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its length. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top around its side, and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on the two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. Verse 5. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So what he's just done there is he's told them what this altar of incense should look like, what it should be made of, right? Then in verse 6, he tells them where they're going to put it. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat. That is above the testimony where I will meet with you. In other words, this was put right before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. That was where that was to be put. That's not all. He tells them exactly what they're to do with this altar. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. When? Every morning. 
When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. For how long? Before the Lord throughout your generations. He's told us who is supposed to do this. Who is supposed to offer it? Aaron. What is he supposed to offer? Incense. When is he supposed to do this? Morning and evening. Now look at verse 9. Because God knows what we're like. Robert, as a teacher, you understand and I understand that students just love to find loopholes, don't we, brother? You have to cross every T and dot every I and think about what are the possible loopholes that they can find. Well, that's just human nature. Look at verse 9. God knows this about us. Look at what he says. You shall not offer what? Unauthorized incense on it. Or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. What has God just done? He's just told them what not to do. He's told them what to do, and he's told them what not to do. And he's left out anything that they may come up with on their own to do with this altar. They're not to pour out a drink offering on it. They're not to offer a burnt offering on it. They are to only offer incense on it. And this incense that they are to offer on it had to be made up a certain way. They couldn't just get their essential oils... I don't know if that's still popular or not. I know for a while like that was super popular. And mix up some concoction of essential oils and say, man, this smells really good and this is going to cure me of every single problem that I've got. Right? It's not, it's not how this works. In fact, go with me to verse 34. God leaves no stone unturned. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. I don't know how to pronounce these two words, so I'll do the best that I can. Please forgive me. Stacti and Ayoncha. I don't know this one either. Galbanum. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Each shall there be an equal part. I don't know much as far as pronunciation, but we were just given the recipe. We were just given the recipe. God says, this is what you're going to use. This is what you need to use. And this is how much you need to use of each one of these. Verse 35, you make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt. Listen, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony of the tent of meeting. Where I shall meet with you, it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall make, excuse me, you shall not make for yourselves. In other words, they were not allowed to, to say, oh, that smells really good. I'm going to make some for myself and, and burn that in my house. No, there was a clear distinction that God is making between the common and the holy. He is holy. And this was only meant for the worship of him. In fact, that's what he says. It shall be holy for Excuse me. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Verse 38. Now we connect the dot between Nadab and Abihu, do we not? Whoever makes any of it, excuse me, whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Go back to Leviticus chapter 10. Let's think about what we just read. 
God clearly prescribes, God clearly commands how he was to be worshipped, what they were to do. And this is not left up to human wisdom as we've discussed. When you look at verse 1 at the very end of the verse, what did they do? They did the exact opposite of what he had said. They went in where they weren't supposed to go. They did what they were not supposed to do. They got the fire for the, the censure from a place where they were not supposed to get it. And they used incense that was not authorized to be used for the worship of God. The Lord had prescribed what to offer. How to offer it. Who was to offer it. And the composition of it. All of that, brothers and sisters, is God's grace. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. That he gave them exactly what to do. The priests were simply to follow God's command. We have a saying in our culture, right? You have one job. You got one job. Do what God said. But unfortunately, they didn't. Think about this. God regulated how he was to be worshipped for his glory, to reveal his holiness, to protect from his judgment, and to guide in worship. That's what he did. There's a brother that lived in Matthew Henry's time that said this. It's a dangerous thing in the service of God to decline from his own institutions. We have to do with a God who is wise to prescribe his own worship, just to require what he has prescribed, and powerful to revenge what he has not prescribed. So what did Nadab and Abihu do? Well, they went beyond the bounds of Scripture. That's what they did. They went beyond the bounds of Scripture. They went beyond God's clear command. They went against God's clear command. And you need to understand that in doing that, what they were ultimately doing, just like Cain did, they were rejecting who? They were rejecting God. That's what they were doing. So, we're back to our question, are we not? How can a sinner offer worship that's acceptable to a holy God? We're in a dilemma, are we not? How do we do this? How do we stand before a holy and righteous God and offer Him worship that's acceptable to Him? We've seen that, that we have to stay within the bounds of Scripture. And so what does the Scripture say let me give you three things. Number one, this is a Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer. Jesus. That's how. Our great high priest who did what no other priest could do. The Bible says in Hebrews that every priest stood daily ministering to the people and making atonement not only for their sin, but his own sin as well. But Jesus didn't have to do that, did he? How are we able to worship a holy and righteous God? Only through King Jesus. Our great high priest, our mediator, through his blood, through his body, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, 
That's the only way that your worship will be acceptable to God. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough things. You can only be made right with the holy God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And hear me say this, until you do that, your worship will never be accepted before God. That's the first domino that has to fall. And if that's you this morning, what are you waiting for? You've already seen what God is like. He's holy. He's righteous. You cannot stand before him. You will not talk your way into heaven. You will be like Nadab. You will be like Abihu. His sheer holiness when you stand before him, he will judge you and consume you in an instant. You say, you're just trying to scare me into heaven. No, I'm telling you the truth. What God is like and what he's done for us in Christ that wrath that God has, that holy and righteous wrath against sin and sinners was poured out on Christ. He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He has to judge it. If God did not judge sin, he would be unjust and be a sinner himself. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, know the only way is through King Jesus. Say, okay, what do I do? What does God require of me? What does the Bible say that I need to do? What, what, what do I need to do? I know that I can't do anything else with human wisdom. I've got to do what God's prescribed. Here's what God's prescribed. You ready? It's very simple. Repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and trust Christ alone. Stop trying to be your own boss. Stop trying to wiggle around God. Stop trying to do your own thing. Stop trying to be like the guys in Pilgrim's Progress that climbed over the wall to get on the path. You can't do that. You can only come to God on God's terms. But listen, in His grace and in His mercy and in His goodness, He has told you, oh man, what He requires. To repent and believe. Second, and I think we need to hear this this morning, myself included. When we come before God, we need to come with fear and trembling. We just do need to remember who we are here to worship. It's really not about the song that's played or how well the song is played. It's really not about the preaching or how well the preaching goes. It's really not about the joke that was told or the joke that was not told. It's really not about the squirrels that are in the trees or the planes that fly over or the train that goes by sometimes. Or the big loud tractor trailer trucks that go down the road. It's not about any of those things. It's really not even about primarily trying to make sure we see whomever we want to see that day. That's a blessing that we see our church family. But we come to worship God and we should do so in fear and trembling. With humility. Remembering. We don't deserve to be here. Sometimes I think we just forget that. Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes my heart's not right. Sometimes I'm distracted. Sometimes it is about the squirrels and the trees. I get distracted. I'm sinful. I struggle. I'm weak. I don't know about you. Sometimes somebody will be praying and I'll be thinking about something else. 
Or somebody will be reading scripture and I'll start reading and the next thing you know, my mind's drifting. Or somebody's preaching and I'm in it and I'm listening and I'm getting something out of it. And the next thing you know, I'm like, uh, shiny object. We're weak. This is why we need to come before God in fear and trembling. We really are like Mephibosheth. We really don't deserve to be at the king's table. We're there by God's grace. We're here by God's grace. Number three, cling to the word. Cling to the word. Cling to the word. So you can only come through Christ, then have an attitude of fear and trembling before this holy God, one of humility, and then cling to the word. Remember what I told you. God has given us six days to prepare for this day. So many times we live for the six days and we blow off the seventh day. Amen? Or oh me. Or both. Think about it. We get so caught up in our jobs, so caught up in our bank accounts, so caught up in the stock market, so caught up in gas prices, so caught up in politics that we forget, man, this earth is not our home. We live for the other six when the seventh is the most important day of the week. I'm not saying don't work. I'm not saying any of those things. We have to. God's ordained us to work, by the way. Genesis 1 and 2. But as we do that, it matters how we do that. That we're not living for those things, but we're living for the Lord as we do those things. An act of worship unto God in my employment. And using it as a preparation every moment of every day. Brothers, are you still leading your family in worship? Are you still reading the Bible at least once a week with your kids, with your spouse? Whatever the dynamic in your home looks like. Are you praying for them? Cling to the word. And I said this last week in Family Connect. But think about this with me just for a moment. If it's in God's word that he's prescribed how we are to approach him, and it's, it's in his word that he's prescribed how we are to worship him, then why is it we spend so little time in the word? I mean, seriously. I know we're busy. We're all busy. Trust me. I know. So here's my encouragement. Get in the word. Make a plan. Stick to the plan. Make it a priority. Read. Read. Now you're thinking, this was about this was supposed to be on missions. What does this have to do with missions? Everything. <laughs> this is missions. How do sinners come to faith in Christ? Repentance and faith. What do we feed people that come to faith in Christ? The word of God. We do those things so that we can rightly fulfill our creative purpose, which is to love and enjoy God forever. We will not do that. You cannot do that. It is literally impossible, it's impossible to do that apart from being born again by the Spirit of God and re responding in repentance and faith. And it is also impossible to do that apart from reading the Bible. Next week, we're going to look at how we worship him as a church family based on what I've talked about today, applying the regulative principle to where we're at as a church family. And then we're also going to look at how, in verse 3, God says he's near to those, excuse me, those who are near to him. He'll be sanctified by them. 
and he'll be glorified by all people what that means. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this time that we've had to worship you this morning. And I thank you for your word, God. I know this might have been a lot to swallow. It's early in the morning. But we need to swallow, God. We go to the doctor and sometimes they prescribe these big, ginormous pills that we just have to get down. And when we get them down, it makes us better. This is a truth about who you are that we need to swallow. We're not given the freedom to repackage you, remake you, reshape you, remold you, redefine you any way that we want to. And neither can we do that with worship. Your word and in your grace, you've given us in your word exactly how you've called us to worship you. Father, Nadab and Abihu are examples of men who at one point operated within the framework of your commands and then at another point did the opposite there's a warning there as well i pray that your spirit searches our hearts this morning and if there's anyone listening online or if there's anyone listening here underneath the trees that doesn't know you as their lord and savior that god in repentance and faith Today will be the day of salvation for them. God grant them life that leads to repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I invite you to stand to your feet as we worship the Lord through song.